Hey everyone, this is Johnny Martinez, pastor of Restoration Church, and welcome to our podcast. We hope this podcast inspires you and encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. We hope you enjoy the sermon. The greatest lie the enemy wants you to believe is that he doesn't exist. And if he can't get you to believe that he doesn't exist, he will then attempt you to believe that he will leave you alone. Friends, let me just remind you today that the enemy does exist and that the enemy will never leave you alone. He will never leave you alone. Scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 5 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He says, your adversary, my adversary, the one who wants to destroy us and steal our joy and our peace and our, our soul, the one who wants to create destruction in our relationships and in our marriage and so forth and so on. And part of being sober-minded, as Peter tells us here, is knowing who our enemy is. Part of being watchful and wakeful in regards to the enemy is to study who the enemy is and how he, how he attacks both believers and non-believers, so that when he does attack us, so that when he does attack you, it wouldn't be a surprise. Uh, if you think about it, an NFL football team watches hours and hours and hours and hours of film, don't they, uh, of their opponent. Hours and hours. They spend hours and hours watching the offense, the defense, the special teams. How much more should we then study the one who seeks to destroy us? The one who seeks to tempt us? And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to know our opponents. I want us to know Satan and his legion of demons. I want us to know what they're like, what they do, and lastly, how we can be victorious in our spiritual battle. Because a spiritual battle is a spiritual reality. It is. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump in and ask God to bless our time together. God, I know the enemy wants us to believe that he'll leave us alone. I know the enemy wants us to believe that he doesn't exist, but your word says contrary. The enemy tries to make us believe that the spiritual realm and the spiritual battle is not important. Yet God, your word says contrary. And so I just pray that for a few moments today, we would silence our hearts, that you would speak to us through the power of your word, that you would allow us to see the enemy's strategies and schemes to trip us up. And God, I pray that at the end of this, that we would come out victorious with new tools in our tool belt to battle the fiery darts of the enemy. Protect us, bless our time together, and all of God's people said, amen. The first thing I want you to know is this, 
Again, I want to give you a brief overview of who the enemy is, what he does, and how we overcome him in our spiritual life. And so the first thing I want you to know is this, that Satan is, cre- is a created, fallen spirit being. Satan is a created, fallen spirit being. Like we talked about last week in regards to good angels, uh, they were created as well. Well, uh, Satan was created uh, in that time as well, in that, in that moment as well. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6, I mentioned this last week. It says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host. And remember, host is in reference to the angelic realm. Uh, the earth and all that is on it, uh, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. So Satan was created good, and he was created with all of the other angels. However, he didn't stay good. Uh, He fell, and he took other angels with him. Now they're demons and evil angels. Now, the question is, where does when did this happen, and does the Bible talk about the fall of Satan? Well, we don't know exactly when it happened, but we know that it had to have happened sometime uh, between Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, where God creates everything good, right? And between Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, where he begins to tempt Eve, Adam and Eve, right? So sometime between God creating everything good and the fall is when uh, Satan fell from heaven. Now, where do we find this? Uh, where do we find the fall of Satan? Most theologians and scholars believe that there are two places, and I'll just mention one because they're very similar, but uh, that they're found in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28, speaking about the fall of Satan. And so what we need to understand here is that there's kind of like a double meaning to uh, these verses. So for example, in Isaiah 14, these verses are directly related to a pagan king. Okay, in that context, they're directly related to that pagan king. But this pagan king, uh, he thought of himself as a god. Uh, He promoted false worship. And so these are things that Satan does, right? He thinks he's a god. He he, He wanted to be greater than God, and he promotes false worship. Well, this king then serves as an illustration or an example of Satan. So it's kind of like a double meaning thing here. Yes, directly in context, it's speaking of the king, but it's also speaking, they think, theologians think, that it's speaking of the fall of Satan. Let me read that to you here. Uh, Isaiah 14, 12. Uh, notice the language, right? It's just, it's not just a, it's not just language of a, of a, of a king. I think it's, it's, it goes beyond that. It says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who lay the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. We know that uh, from Jude and from Peter that the that demons wanted, they had this pride about them. They didn't want to stay within their role and within, uh, within their authority. They wanted to surpass the authority of God. And so again, I think the same is true in the Ezekiel 28 verse. And so Satan is created, but he's fallen. Uh, but Satan is, is also a spirit. And we know that from Ephesians chapter 2. 
It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he's a spiritual being. He's immaterial. So that's who Satan is. The second thing I want you to notice about Satan is that Satan is morally evil. He's completely morally evil. He's the opposite of what is good. He's the opposite of who God is. There are 29 names for Satan in the Bible. And we need to understand that in the Bible, names reveal a person's character, okay? Names reveal a person's character. And so Satan in Hebrew means adversary. And so the Greek New Testament took that same word. Uh, And so Satan in both Hebrew and Greek means adversary. And the name the devil means slander. Those are the two most common names in the Bible for the devil, So he's an adversary. He's your adversary. He's my adversary. He's God's adversary to destroy the kingdom of God. And he's a slander. He slanders God. He slanders us. He accuses you and he accuses me. Other names for Satan that reveal his character are the serpent, the accuser, the adversary, the enemy, the father of lies, a lying spirit, a murderer, and a tempter, and the list goes on and on and on. I'm sure you get that he's not a good guy. Uh, He's not a good guy. He's morally evil. Not like our culture paints him, right? They paint the devil uh, with a a guy in these really tight, tight red, a red suit, right, with a long pointy tail. That's not what the devil looks like, and that's not who he is. He's not funny. He's not a character. He's morally evil and completely opposite of who God is is. Third, what I want you to notice about Satan is this, that Satan is a powerful being. He's a powerful being. Now, here's the thing. Satan is not as powerful as God. God is the creator of all of creation, and Satan is a created being created by God. We know that Satan is not all-powerful. God is all-powerful. Let me just show you how powerful Satan really is. Satan has the power of death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery. So what does it mean that Satan has the power of death? Does it mean that he can kill you just like that? No, that's not what it means. But it does mean that he can entice people to sin that leads to death. He can entice or tempt someone into revenge so that they can murder someone. He can entice someone to anger to the point of murder. Uh, He can entice someone to the point of jealousy so they can murder and so forth and so on. But he doesn't have the power to take your life like that, but he does have the power to entice someone to commit a murderous act. But the beautiful thing about being a believer and in Christ is that in Christ and on the cross, Jesus destroyed the power of death. 
for those who are in him. Because for the believer, what is death but the beginning of our eternal life with God in heaven? So he's powerful. He has the power of death. But fortunately for the believer, the death of Christ resulted in the death of death. Satan has also the power to blind unbelievers. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan tries to keep unbelievers in the dark from seeing the light of the gospel. I don't know if this is home to you, but it does to me. Because I have family and friends that are currently under the power of Satan, blinded. He has blinded them so that they cannot see the beautiful message of the gospel. And that should create in you an urgency to reach the lost. It should create in us an urgency to get on our knees and call out to God because God is powerful enough to remove the blindfold that the enemy has placed on those we love. But he has the power to do that. He has the power to blind unbelievers. Satan has also the power to go to and from heaven to earth. He's a supernatural being. If you think about it in Job, I mean, he could just bounce around heaven and all of earth. Job chapter two, verse one. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. So now we see heaven just approaching God in heaven. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The thing with Satan, though, is that he's not omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere at once like God is. But you better believe that Satan is going back from heaven to earth and he's walking and running and sprinting all around the earth to cause destruction, to cause evil, and to do whatever it takes to hinder the kingdom of God and the gospel of God. Now, two questions that I often get all the time uh, in regards to the power of Satan. The first question is this, does Satan or demons have the power to read our minds? Can they read our minds? And the answer is no, they, they can't. They're not omniscient, meaning all-knowing. He's, he's a creator. He doesn't know all things, and he doesn't, have that, he doesn't have that type of power. Only God can read your mind. God already knows something before you even think it, actually. But only God has the power to read your mind. But I'll tell you this, though. Listen in. Listen in and lean in. He does have the power to observe. Satan has the power to observe your life. And he's watching you. And his demons are watching your life. Although they don't have power to read your mind, they have the power and observation to see what you're like. They know your weakness. And can I tell you something? They know your weaknesses better than you do. And they're going to attack your weaknesses. They're gonna, they know where you struggle. They know where I struggle. 
and they can observe that and use that to their advantage. But no, he doesn't have the power to read our minds. The second question I get in regards to Satan's power is this. And I'm going to phrase this question this way, although I don't like the question. The question is, does he have the power to possess a believer? Can the enemy or a demon possess a believer? And so this idea of demon possession, I don't think is accurate. And I really don't like to use that phrase, demon possession. Because here's the thing. When we think of demon possession, we think of a demon having complete and total control of a person where the person cannot uh, exercise any of their free will. That's what we, we, we usually tend to think about when we think about demon possession. They have no control whatsoever. However, the Bible doesn't use that word uh, in that way. I think there's a better, better term, and the term demon possession is really not reflected in the Greek text. A better word, if I can just um, let you know, a, a better biblical term is demonized. I think that's a better word. Instead of demon possession, let's, let's use demonize. Um, the word demonize um, comes from the word daimonizomai. It's a Greek word, and it's used about 32 times in the gospel and in Acts. Let me just give you one, uh, one occurrence here. Matthew 4, 24, it says this. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him uh, all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons. And I think this is where the ESV and the NASB, the New American Standard Version, have it right. The NASB uses demoniacs. They don't use possessed. So it's oppressed or demoniacs. And so let me just give you a working definition of what, of what demonized means and a more accurate definition of, of what this means and what the Bible's trying to convey. It's this. It is the reality of a demon or demons, because a person can be filled with multiple demons, actually taking up residence and having powerful influence, not total influence or control, within the body of a demonized person. I'll just read that again. It is the reality of a demon or demons actually taking up residence and having powerful influence within the body of a demonized person. So a person can be demon-possessed, right? But it's not a total control. Uh, it's a powerful influence, it's a strong influence, but the person is still able to utilize their will. Now, so can a believer, a believer be demon-possessed? Or I just like broke my own rule, demonized, demonized. The answer is no. Uh, an, a, a believer, if you're truly saved, if you are truly in Christ, you cannot be demonized. You can't. First of all, there is no case in the Bible of a believer being demonized. Not one. Not one. Second of all, for example, let's think about this theologically. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? In other words, darkness and light do not mix. It's like water and oil. They just do not mix. 
And so we are filled, and as I was talking about today in the, in, in the, in the Ephesians passage, what we're sealed, right, with the indwelling power of the Spirit. And so darkness can't invade us. We're the temple of God, where the Holy Spirit dwells. And so darkness and light cannot mix. Ephesians chapter 4:30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed again, sealed for the day of redemption. This sealing is the Holy Spirit in the believer to protect them and to preserve them until the very end. So no, a demon cannot demonize a believer. Can a demon demonize an unbeliever? Yes, he can. He totally can. Why? They're not protected by the Holy Spirit. They're not sealed by the Spirit. And so yes, a demon can demonize an unbeliever. Now, let me mention this, believer. Just because a demon cannot demonize you, come into your heart, right, in, in your life and reside in you, doesn't mean that you're in the clear, as I mentioned earlier. Demons, although they can't possess us or demonize us, they do attack us. They do attack us. And they attack every single believer to various degrees. And we know that from Scripture. Like, for example, in Ephesians 6, we wrestle against the cosmic powers of darkness. James 4, resist the devil and he will flee. 1 Peter 5, 8, be watchful of the enemy. So we know that he still attacks believers. He attacks them and he attacks us to various degrees, although he can't possess us or demonize us. I had a conversation not too long ago with a lady. And uh, uh, years back, she was telling me, um, she, years back, she first told me about the fact that she couldn't she couldn't sleep. She couldn't sleep at night uh, because she just felt uh, these supernatural things happening in her room. And uh, uh, just things that I, I can't even explain to you in the middle of the night. Uh, they're just unexplainable. They really are. And so she asked me to go and pray for her room. Uh, and I did. I, I went over and I prayed for her room. And, and she said that it, it was really helpful, uh, although that Although the battle uh, continued, I, it, she was able to sleep a little bit better. It was affecting her sleep. It was affecting her spiritual life. It was affecting her relationships. It was affecting her uh, ability to work. Why? Because she would work from that room. Now that a lot of people worked from home, you know, because of COVID. And so she was just going through a lot spiritually. And I believe the enemy was oppressing her. And so, uh, like I said, I went to go pray and she felt a little bit better. And she was able to sleep a little bit better, although man, it was obvious, like there was a spiritual battle that she was going through, a spiritual battle. Um, and then uh, what ended up happening is that uh, she ended up moving. Uh, she ended up moving to uh, a new place because it was for three years she dealt with that, three years. And again, things I can't even explain. Uh, like I said, I talked to her not too long ago and she's sleeping a lot better. Uh, there was something about where she lived. I don't know what it was, but that was the enemy was attacking her, it was attacking her joy, it was attacking her peace, it was attacking her spiritual life. I mean, I'm telling you, like it was, it was pretty bad. And I could relate to that. Um, if we were going through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, I think one of the sermons, you, you probably were there for the sermon if you've been with us for a while, 
um, as we travel through the gospel, I came on a passage um, that spoke about demons in the gospel of Mark. And I remember that, that Saturday night, I was fine. And uh, uh, Sunday morning, I came to set up. But then like 30 minutes before I had to preach on that passage on demons, uh, man, I, here's the thing. If you know me really well, you know I don't blame everything on Satan, you know, the demons, you know, you, you have that, you always have that person that blames everything on, on demons. I'm not that person. I'm not that person. Uh, we always have that person that says, man, I, I was late to work. You know, Satan's trying to, to, you know, you know, make me late to work. I'm like, no, you were, you were late because you didn't wake up early. Don't, you know, don't, don't blame Satan for that. So I'm not that type of person, but um, 30 minutes before the sermon, uh, I, I felt this like, just, feeling I've never experienced before, man. Like it was this oppression behind my back. My shoulders got heavy. My back got heavy. Uh, actually, uh, TMI, but I'm going to share it to you with, share with us anyway. Uh, I just felt like I wanted to throw up. I did. Like I, I felt so lightheaded before preaching on demons. Like it was just, it's just this weird spiritual um, experience that I had right before preaching. I taught the message and I think I, immediately after that, I left. I'm like, I just need to go home and I need to sleep. And I just slept. And so the enemy attacks us in different ways, especially if you're out there trying to expose him. He attacks us if you're out there trying to live for the kingdom. He doesn't attack people who aren't. He doesn't attack people who are complacent and lukewarm. He's already got you where he needs you. He does attack, and he attacks in various ways. And you might be saying, well, I've never experienced demonic attacks like this lady, Johnny. I've never experienced, you know, oppression uh, like you just described, but you have. Have you ever been tempted to get really angry at somebody? Have you ever been tempted to be extremely jealous of what other people have? Have you ever been tempted to doubt who God is? To doubt your salvation? To doubt whether you are in Christ? Have you ever been tempted to take revenge on somebody for what they did to you? Have you ever been tempted to lie? Have you ever been tempted to compare yourself because the God of this world says that all the earthly pleasures are better than what God has to offer? Have you ever been tempted with discontent? I just want more and more and more and more. Have you ever gone through a difficult season in your marriage? Have you? What do you think that is? You remember the story of the garden. What does the enemy do? Adam's supposed to be the leader of the house. But what does he do? He isolates Eve separates and causes division within the first marriage ever, isolates her and tempts her. And then what happens after they both fall? They start playing the blame game on each other. If your marriage has gone through a tough time, you've been attacked. Have you ever struggled with fear? Fear of death, fear of the future. Have you ever struggled with complacency? Or are you currently struggling with complacency? Because here's the thing. If the enemy can't get you to sin, he'll get you stuck. Have you ever struggled with being too busy for God? Because if he can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. 
We've all been attacked, church, to various degrees. Be very aware of that. Be very aware. So what does he do? What does Satan do? This is what Satan does. Satan attempts to hinder the work of God. That's what he does. Satan attempts to hinder the work of God. Mark chapter 4, verse 15, talking about the parable of the soils. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. The word is sown. The gospel is preached. And look at what Satan does. He immediately snatches the seed, snatches the word out of that person's heart and out of that person's mind. Man, if that doesn't get you ticked off, I don't know what will. Satan is out there, out hustling each and every one of us, hustling to and fro, snatching seeds so that people cannot see the light of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus, and he's hustling and hustling and hustling. And I hope and I pray that that just creates some urgency in you to reach the lost, to share the gospel, to do whatever it takes to win souls for God, because he's hustling. The question are, is, are we hustling? You and I, are we hustling when a seed is planted in someone? Are we there to protect it? to let it flourish and grow before the enemy comes and snatches it out. Charles Spurgeon says, consider how precious a soul must be when both God and the devil are after it. Man, how precious is a soul if both God and the enemy are after it. Every soul is precious. Every friend, every family member that we have that Satan just snatches and snatches the seed to hinder the work of God. What else does he do to hinder the work of God? He influences people to lie, Acts chapter 5. He tempts believers to sin, 1 Corinthians 7. He seeks to deceive the children of God through false teaching and all kinds of things. He thwarts the progress of a ministry, 1 Thessalonians 2. And he wages war against the church, Ephesians 6. Not only does Satan attempt to hinder the work of God, Satan attempts to destroy believers. Satan attempts to destroy believers. Ephesians 6, verse 16, it says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. He's out to destroy you, guys. He's out to destroy us. He seeks to make our lives a living hell if he can't send us to hell. Notice what it says, that he's throwing flaming darts at us, plural, darts, plural, multiple. He doesn't just throw one and says, okay, they're good. They, I couldn't get them. I'm going to move on. He keeps throwing. He keeps firing at you over and over and over and over again. Now, what does he aim for? Have you ever thought, have you ever thought about that? What does Satan aim for? If he's throwing fiery darts at us, 
What is he aiming? What's the target? Is it our hearts? Is it our hands? Is it our stomachs? Is it our eyes? Is it our heads? Like, what is it? I believe that when Satan throws those flaming darts at us, he aims for the mind. He aims for the mind. Let me, let me back it up. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, he uses the word designs. So schemes and designs all relate to the manipulation of your mind, of our mind. So here's what Satan is doing. Satan has a playbook with your name on it. He does. He has plays. He's strategizing how to destroy you and me. He, he gathers together in his locker room with his demons. There's a whiteboard with your name on it. And he has X's and O's. And he's like, I know, I, I know their weakness. And how can we mess with their mind? And he strategizes. Do you have a strategy for those fiery darts that are just coming right at you? The battle for the soul is won or lost in the mind. The battle for the soul is won or lost in the mind. Proverbs 23, 7, for as he thinks within himself what? so he is. He wants you to think contrary to God's word because if he could get you to think contrary to God's word, he could get you to live contrary to God's word. The battle for the soul is won or lost in the mind. Going back to Genesis 3, it was mind manipulation, wasn't it, in the garden? Did God really say that you couldn't eat there? God doesn't want you to know good and evil, Eve. It was a mind manipulation. He targeted her mind, and what happened? He got her soul. He got her soul. So he targets your mind. Thankfully, God, through the word of God, renews our mind. He doesn't target our mind with fiery arrows, but God's word says that we're, our minds are renewed the more we are in his word. Believer, before I move on to the last part, I hope, I pray to God that we all together understand the severity of spiritual warfare. I really do. I hope and I pray that you take this message serious for your sake, for your family's sake, for the kingdom's sake, for the gospel's sake. This is not a joke. And we can't play church. We, we don't have time to play church anymore. So here's what I love about God. God doesn't send us out to battle with no armor God doesn't send us out to battle with no weapons. He gives us the equipment we need to fight the enemy. Now, what are those things? In Ephesians chapter 6, we see those. 
It's the belt of truth. It's the belt of truth. The belt of truth is our confidence, believer, that comes from the certainty of God's truth. That if God is for us, who can be against us, right? That we are a new creation, redeemed, forgiven, have hope in Christ. That is the belt of truth. That God never lies. That whatever God said in his word, he will do. That he is a faithful covenant-keeping God. And, now, and it's not only just believing the truth with their minds and embracing the truth, but living the truth. Living the truth of scripture. Why? Because a believer who doesn't live and in the truth, doesn't put on the belt of truth, what is, is what? More susceptible to the fiery darts of the enemy. Attacks of the enemy. So it's both believing the truth of God and clinging on to the promises of God, but also living in that truth. It's the breastplate of righteousness. Satan constantly accuses the believer. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. How dare you do this? I can't believe you did this. God doesn't love you anymore. But we must remember our positional righteousness that we are declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us on the cross. And when we placed our faith in Jesus, he took our sin and we took his righteousness. And so now we're declared righteous. Yes, we still sin. We're saints who sin. But the enemy can no longer accuse us anymore of those things. So it's our positional righteousness in Christ, but it's also our practical righteousness to live rightly, to live holy, to live in righteousness, because why? Because if we don't live righteously, again, we leave the enemy an opening to attack us. It's the shoes of the gospel or the shoes of peace that, the, that God gives us. Roman soldiers would wear boots with nails under them, and these nails would, would grip the ground during combat. And so it is the gospel of peace that grips us in the middle of spiritual warfare. The fact that because we are in Jesus and because we're in Christ, we have peace with God. That we are okay with God. That we are in okay standing with him. We have peace with God. And because we have peace with God in our relationship with God, we also have the peace of God that God gives us during the most difficult situations that we have. And that grips us when the enemy attacks us. It's also the idea of us sharing the message of peace, sharing the message of the gospel. As Paul writes in Romans, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings the good news of the gospel. It is the shield of faith that God gives us. It's, this is just basic trust in God. It's basic trust in God's word that he's going to be faithful until the very end. That whatever God said he will do, when the enemy tries to create doubt, fear, uncertainty, whatever it may be, no, we are rooted in God because he's faithful. And if he was faithful in the past, he's going to be faithful in the future. One thing I learned this week about the shield of faith, back then, a shield, 
um, the outer part of the shield was actually made so that it would interlock with other soldiers. The shield of faith. The shield would interlock with someone next to them and that person would interlock with someone next to them and they would just keep going. What does that tell the believer? That spiritual battle is not something we do alone. It's not something we do alone. We need each other. We need to pray for each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to exhort and rebuke each other. We need to challenge each other. It's, it's not something we do alone. We must not forsake the meeting and the gathering of the saints. I could just skip, skip it on church this week. I'm good. Can't get in that habit. We need each other. A shield of faith, a basic trust in God, and a basic trust in our family. The helmet of salvation is the believer's assurance of God's sovereign grace upon the believer. When the enemy tempts you to doubt your salvation, are you really in Christ? But what about that bad thing you did last week? You think you're really going to forgive that? I don't think so. And you doubt, what if I die tonight? Where would I go? How do I know for sure? And so the enemy's just firing, firing at your salvation. You see, because if the enemy can get you to constantly question your salvation, he knows he will render you powerless for the kingdom of God. But we know that Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Salvation from beginning to end is all of God. He called you. He chose you. He predestined you. He justified you. And he will glorify you one day. Salvation is all of God. And if you are truly in Christ, there's nothing and no one that can snatch you from his hand. Rest assured, the helmet of salvation. And lastly, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Your only offensive weapon is the word of God. You know, I've heard this phrase, which is pretty, pretty catchy, and I see where they're going with it. I've heard this phrase over and over, that, the, that praise is our greatest weapon against the enemy. I've heard the phrase, worship is the greatest weapon against the enemy. That's what I've heard. And this sounds good. It'll preach good. But the more I thought about it, I'm like, no, it's not. No, it's not. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he didn't start breaking out in worship songs. What did he do? He quoted scripture. He quoted the powerful, living, active, double than any sword, double-edged sword, word of God. He didn't start worshiping. He quoted scripture. And the better you and I know the Bible, the better you and I will be, be prepared for battle. The better you and I know the Bible, the better you will be prepared for battle. 
God has given you and I everything we need. All the equipment, all the armor. Will you use it? Will you win the spiritual warfare? Will you persevere until the very end? The enemy is powerful, but God is all powerful. The enemy has the power of death, but God has the power of life. Satan targets the mind, but only God can transform the heart. Satan has the power to travel, but God is omnipresent. We have a big God, powerful God, a great God. May you rest in him. May you depend upon him for protection. You and I can't battle him on our own. It is only through the power of God and the spirit of God and the word of God that we can render the devil's scheme and fiery, fiery darts absolutely useless. Believer, may you be encouraged today. You have a big God. You have a loving God. If you don't know God, if you don't know Jesus, if you're not in Christ, can I just be honest with you, friend? You're out in this battle with no armor. You got no armor out there. You're out in this battle of life, blindfolded, with absolutely no protection, no defense, and with absolutely no offense. You got nothing. You're so vulnerable to the schemes of the world and the schemes of the enemy. And Frank, can I just lovingly tell you, you have no choice or you have no chance. You have no chance, friend. But God loves you enough to send his one and only son. And if you would believe upon him and call upon him, Repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ. Not only will he clothe you with his righteousness, he will clothe you, clothe you with his armor, protect you, give you peace, give you hope. Come to him today. Today's the day of salvation. There's no better day and believe upon the Lord and you will be saved. Let me pray. God, I pray for any person here today that is out doing this battle alone with no armor. Only you know who they are. I pray you would draw them by your sovereign grace. Your word says that only you draw them. Transform their hearts, change their hearts, renew their hearts, their affections, and their adoration for you, God. 
save them from the fiery darts of the enemy. Open up their their eyes so they can see the glorious gospel, the good news that you came to save sinners. You came to give hope. You came to give eternal life. You came to forgive. You came to comfort. God, I pray for believers today that you would just remind us of the reality that we're in. Just because we cannot physically see demons and angels and spiritual realm doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Remind us, God, of the reality. Remind us of the equipment that's available to us. Remind us to protect our minds by renewing them according to your word as the enemy just targets our mind. God, I pray for any person in here as a believer that is maybe struggling with oppression, constant attacks upon their relationships, upon their marriage, upon their kids, upon their work or whatever it may be. God, protect them. Protect them. May they find rest. May they find hope. May they find security in you, God love you. We honor you. We trust you, sovereign God. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to those who give generously to this ministry. Without you, this ministry would not be possible. If you feel led to give, please use the link below as we seek to make a difference in people's lives. Also, please make sure to share this with your family and your friends. Again, thank you so much for listening.